It is good to be with you today, and it's great to have Thomas here. He's doing great work on the campus. I hope you get a chance to hear more about that. Um, we are taking eight weeks to examine the core teachings that come to us in the Apostles' Creed. And every sentence in the Creed uh, speaks to us of foundational core truths that Christians have embraced for, uh, again, the better part of 2,000 years. And today, if I could put it this way, we look at the very center of the core, Christ, his suffering, his dying, his resurrection. And so we want to use our key text this morning, Luke 24, verses 1 to 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Amen. Heavenly Father, we take up this your word. We pray to speak to our hearts. Help us to hear your voice and to respond in faith. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things that's been our custom here at the church for quite some time is to pray for other churches. Um, we we want to make it clear uh, that we don't support just other churches that are in our denomination, other sister churches, uh, uh, churches that are just like us, but that we uh, do support churches that we know to be thoroughly Christian, thoroughly Christ-centered at their core. One of the phrases that Pastor Keith has used for a long time, uh, in fact, he said it this morning, he says, we, uh, we lift up those who name the name of Christ and hope in his cross. Now, that's just a shorthand way of saying, again, a, a congregation that's Christ-centered, that you name the name of Christ above all other names, and that your hope is squarely put on the cross and the work of Jesus Christ. And if, and if a church, if that describes any church in town, that describes a church that is a partner with us in the gospel. By the way, the list of churches I have are just based on my personal relationships. I'm sure there's a lot more than what we pray for. These just happen to be churches that I know personally, this is true of them. They name the name of Christ. They hope in his cross. And I, hopefully this, as I get to know more people, and we can say that with confidence about other churches, we will expand the list. We understand that this is a, a big group, not just around the city, but around the state, around the world. Those who truly name the only name that is above all names, the name of Christ, and hope in his cross. And they are our brothers and sisters and partners in the gospel. By the way, just this past week, out of curiosity, I sent out an email to, I have a, a pretty good sized list of, of pastors here in town. I sent out an email, I asked two questions. I said, do you affirm the, uh, the, the, the Apostles' Creed as teaching truth of, about the, the, the Christian framework of life, and do you use it? Interestingly, 
uh, 90% of the people who responded said, yes, we do affirm the Apostles' Creed. And uh, of, the, of the 10% who don't, most of them said, well, we, we do mostly affirm it. There's just a couple of questions we have. And I bet one of those questions is going to be in today's phrase. So we'll get to that. But think about that. Uh, virtually, everybody I talked to, and by the way, it was mainline, it was evangelical, it was charismatic, it was Baptist, it was all over the map for different kinds of churches in this town. And virtually, 100% said, yeah, I'm, I do agree with this. I might have a few quibbles here or there, which you might too. Interesting. We affirm the declarations of the Apostles' Creed, again, as a biblical framework for the uniquely Christian way of looking at the world. But if I could put it this way, again, within this framework of the Apostles' Creed, right in the center of the creed is kind of the core of the core. We look at the person and work, the suffering and resurrection of Jesus. And if you quibble with that, if you miss that, you've really missed it all. Uh, there is no recovery from missing the centrality of the person and work, the suffering and the resurrection of Christ. If you miss Christ, you've missed it all. This is the Christ we proclaim. This is the Christ we trust in. This is the Christ we worship. And so we want to look at what the the uh, Creed has to say about his suffering and his resurrection, close with a few applications. Now, when we think about the suffering of Christ, before we get to the suffering as it comes to us in this text and other places, we need to notice something else about what the Creed does. And that is that the Creed is anchored in the historicity of his suffering. The historicity, what do I mean by that? These aren't just abstract theological concepts, the creed takes us over and over and over again to points of actual real human history, things you can verify. And so the creed has already given us historical claims, right? It says that Jesus was born, Jesus was a, a man who lived, he was born of a particular manner by a particular woman at a particular time, right? Right? born of the Virgin Mary. Not just a theological claim. That's a historical claim. It's a series of historical claims about this person named Jesus. Now we read that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that he was dead. And he was so dead that he was buried. These are historical claims, again, about people, about places, about methods. These are things that can be fact-checked, right? And these historical claims about Jesus are also central to what we believe. In his book on the Creed, Rowan Williams uh, puts it this way. He said, it is only a tangible historical act, a human act that can break through the curse. Only a human word, a human act, will heal the process of human history. It isn't ideas and ideals that will do this, but some moment in history when relations are changed for good and all. If we know what it means to trust the God who made the world, 
right? We've confessed that already. We can see where we must look for the action that will transform it. Our hope is rooted not in ideas, not in vague abstract theology, but in history, human history. Uh, when Francis Schaeffer, I believe, was talking about this, this is paraphrased, but he, he said something on this order. He said, it, the, the, this is so real, the history is so real that if you had been at Calvary on the day that Jesus died, you could have rubbed your finger on the cross and gotten a splinter. That's the kind of real history we're talking about. And that's what we confess. And so as we think about this historical act, now let's look at the, uh, the suffering, which is... Uh, finds its pinnacle, again, in his death, his death. It's easy to miss the absolute presumption that we know how the story ends, but the absolute presumption in this uh, text I just read of Jesus' death. Look at the first verse of the chapter. It was on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. What is their assumption as they go to the tomb? Well, Jesus was crucified. He's buried. Oh, the Sabbath has begun. We've got to take a pause. And so we're going to come back to the tomb. We're going to finish our work. We're going to finish preparing uh, the body in this burial ritual involving the spices. These women, remember, had seen him dead. These women had prepared his body to go into the tomb. And when they went to the tomb, what they expected to see was his body still in the tomb, still dead. And this is what makes the resurrection account so jarring. Notice what it, we believe are angels, these two men, say. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. He was among the dead. He, they expected him to still be among the dead. This fully human body suffered physically more than we can imagine and died. Many have gone into great detail about the nature of the whipping and, and the blood loss and the crucifixion and the nails and the suffocation. And the creed wants to emphasize this historic truth. A person named Jesus died on a Roman cross at the hands of a man named Pontius Pilate. And we're told in the previous chapter Chapter 23, that there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And uh, this relationship with Pilate is emphasized again because Joseph went to Pilate, we're told, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb. It's been noted by many that uh, if the Romans knew anything, they knew death. And so these theories that this was some kind of swoon, that perhaps Jesus passed out, assumes that the Romans don't know when a man is dead. They knew. And the body was taken. And the body was wrapped. And these women were the ones who laid him in this tomb. 
It's in the creed. He died. Was buried. And then it says something else that might be one of these things we quibble about because we're just not sure what it means. The creed says he descended into hell. He descended into hell. Well, there are varied views as to the meaning of this phrase. And if there is one part of it that, again, people probably wonder, I'm not sure if I do affirm that. It's probably this phrase. What does that mean? There are a couple of key ways uh, that this is generally approached. Maybe a third way uh, that also might add some thought to this. If you want to know about that one, talk to Pastor Tag. Uh, I think it's a very plausible a third option. But the two primary ones you're going to hear are some version of this. Uh, again, the creed is, is not a part of Scripture. It's, it's, we don't analyze it the same way, the same kind of word study. But, so we have to generalize a little bit. If I could put it this way, the creed is not inerrant. Uh, the creed is not a sacred text. It's a summary of Christian teaching, right? Okay, so because of that, this word hell uh, is subject to a lot of analysis. Uh, what, is, what is the creed talking about? And now, some say that the word hell simply describes the place where souls go upon death. If I could put it this way, the realm of the dead. And in the Old Testament, that's... Uh, uh, the word there used is Sheol. It's the realm of the dead, sometimes translated the grave. But it's more than just being in the ground. It's, it's, it's the place where the souls of the dead go. Uh, both those who are right with God, those who are not right with God, find themselves in the realm of the dead, Sheol. In the New Testament, uh, the words Hades or Gehenna, uh, sometimes translated hell is, seems to be describing this same place. And so some would say, well, descend into hell simply means this. In fact, if you read the Packer book, that's the way he's going to land. Just, when it says he descended into hell, it's just a, a reference to this. He really died. He really died. He really went into the realm of the dead, uh, whether it's Sheol, Hades, Gehenna. Uh, this was a real death, and that, that's certainly... Makes some sense, right? But we know in reading the New Testament that the, the way this word used is also sometimes a specific reference to a particular place or experience of torment. Uh, this was the view of John Calvin and uh, many in our circles. This may be the dominant view in our circles. It's the view I've held uh, most of my career. This view takes the creed to mean that Jesus suffered the torment of hell on our behalf, the absence of God's blessing and the presence of God's wrath. Calvin said it this way, Jesus bore all the punishments evildoers ought to have sustained. Surely no more terrible abyss can be conceived than to feel yourself forsaken and estranged from God, and when you call upon him, not to be heard. This is the anguish. It's interesting, of, of all the experience of suffering that Jesus has, there's no record of him crying out in anguish. When is it that he cries out in anguish? From the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you, why have you forsaken me? This is when he cries out. We know that he suffered the wrath that we deserve in our place, and so this also 
This also fits well, this idea of descending into hell, experiencing the torment that you and I uh, deserve. The attending question to that is, well, then, did he experience that torment uh, again for a, a, a short season? Or did he experience it all throughout uh, until his resurrection? And for that answer, uh, we would say uh, very likely was a short season. Uh, Jesus uh, looked to the thief on the cross. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so there is something, uh, whatever the torment is, whatever the hell that he experienced, it is something that, that uh, didn't go on and on and on, but something that would end in such a way that he could say to the thief, today, this day, you'll be with me in paradise. Um, what is the point? Both of these two ideas together descended into hell. He went, really went into the grave. He was truly dead. He went to the realm of the dead. He suffered the pains of hell that we deserved. He took that upon himself. Uh, remember, what the creed is trying to tell us, again, is that you serve a God who has suffered, who has suffered, and he is able to help those who suffer. That's your God. That's your Savior. And Jesus' humanity reminds us that the suffering was real. It was historic. A real price was paid for you. For you. In the popular World War II story, Band of Brothers, Stephen Ambrose writes about Company E, in a particular time near what turned out to be the end of the war, when many of the band of brothers were questioning whether the war was even worth it. Was it uh, all of the death, all the carnage, all of the brothers in arms that they had lost? At that point in the story, the original Company E of 150 was down to 62. That is a mortality rate of about 150%. And so at the end of the story, they're, they're asking that question, given all that we've been through, given all that we've seen, given all of the suffering and agony and hell that we have experienced, is it worth it? That's what suffering does, right? When we suffer, we want to know that there's a reason. We want to know that there's a purpose. We want to know that at the end of it, we could say, but it was worth it, right? But they couldn't say that. And the question lingered. Suffering makes you ask that question, is it worth it? In fact, this is so universal that the prospect of suffering made Jesus wonder. Father, is it possible there's another way? Is it, is it possible that you could take this cup from me? Is it worth it? Well, let's go to the resurrection of Christ. In today's passage, we find the women who find the empty tomb, and they are they're perplexed. They're greeted by these two men, again, dazzling apparel. They appear, sure sound like angels. And then they speak, and they speak the first words of a new order. The first words of a new order. He is not here, 
he has risen. He has risen. It seems so impossible that they can't accept it, but Jesus has told them this would happen. The angels say, remember how he told you? He's going to be crucified, given to the hands of sinful men, and on the third day rise. And what do we hear? And they remembered his words. They remembered his words. This was the plan from the beginning. And now these women would be the first witnesses to a new order, a new age, a new reality. And this also then becomes the most significant of all historical claims. That there was a man who was God, who suffered under the Romans by a man named Pontius Pilate, who was dead, who was buried, and rose again rose again. This is, uh, again, a historical claim. In fact, the Bible treats it, the New Testament treats it like a historical claim. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll, we'll consider here in just a minute, uh, other than the actual resurrection accounts in the Gospels, 1 Corinthians 15 is the most extended teaching we have on the resurrection of Christ. And how does that chapter begin? In fact, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 to 8. Let's just look at that briefly. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. By the way, kind of sounds like an early ideas for a creed, doesn't it? This is what I delivered to you, that he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Uh, many uh, pastors and theologians have uh, stated what is obvious, but you might not have noticed, and that is that Paul is pointing out that these are historical claims you can still, as he writes this letter, investigate. There are 500 people. Yeah, some have died, they're fallen asleep, but there's a lot of them who are still here. Go talk to them. All of the apostles have seen the resurrected Christ. This is their historical claim. And so this is not just a theological proposition. This is the historical claim at the centerpiece of history. And in his teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says very plainly that while Jesus' death made payment for our sins without the resurrection, we would be hopeless. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. You know, it's funny. I've talked to many over the course of my uh, career who have said some version of, well, you know, even if Christianity isn't true, at least I can say at the end of my life, I lived a good life. And Paul says to you, wrong. <laughs> you lived a waste of life. If the resurrection is not true, if this historical claim is not real, then following Christ and living according to his way is a waste of life. 
You are to be pitied above all men. There's only one way to live if this is not true, and that is to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. That's the only thing that makes any sense. But Paul says he has been raised from the dead. He has been raised to the dead. And the victory has been accomplished by Christ, and it will be complete when Jesus returns. And that's next week's topic. And in the creed, we affirm the physical resurrection of Jesus and, again, later in the creed, our own physical resurrection. This is his victory over death. All right, the suffering and the resurrection. Just three things to carry with you this week to think about. Uh, First of all, Christ's cross is essential. Christ's cross is essential. This is the centerpiece of history. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. Uh, There's just so much of this in Paul's writing. 1 Corinthians 2. We talk about, again, these creedal statements and the significance of these things. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. uh, Paul says, brothers, starting in verse 1, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the center of the story. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the core of the core, so much so that Paul can say, this is is the only thing I want to talk about. I decided to know nothing else. And what a beautiful gospel that God sent his most precious resource, his only begotten son, to pay for your sins. In his justice, he doesn't look the other way, but God personally makes your forgiveness truly just. He sent his only begotten son. This is the power of the cross, and the cross is essential. Second thing to take with you, Christ's resurrection is essential. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, you're still in your sins. And the bodily resurrection is the historical proof that the forgiveness of sins is real. This is the power of Jesus' resurrection. It is essential. The cross is essential. The resurrection is essential. Third thing, that means that if we miss Christ's cross and miss his resurrection, we miss Christ. Do you hear that? If we miss his cross... If we miss his resurrection, we miss him. We may disagree about a wide variety of theological issues, but if we miss the historical cross and the historical resurrection of Jesus, we miss it all. We miss it all. Why would God do this for us? I mentioned the band of brothers and their doubts. And uh, their questions were answered when they saw the sufferings of a liberated uh, death camp. And their mission to a faraway land with great bloodshed, they finally decided when they saw, when they saw the carnage, most of them thought it was worth it. Think about Jesus' mission. 
Jesus' mission of rescue for you. And Jesus, this imagery is Jesus comes and he, and he sees the barbed wire and he sees the disease and he sees the decay and he sees the death, the death camp that we live in. And then we recognize that this was a death camp of our own making. That we put ourselves and created that death camp. And that Jesus, by the will of the Father from all eternity past, said, it's worth it. From all eternity past, he counted the cost And the Father sent the Son to take on human flesh and suffer and to suffer like we cannot know. And then won the victory and was raised from the dead. And you are free through the life and the death and the resurrection of the only Son of God. He shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who who holds the power of death. He looked at you, he looked at me, and said, yes, that's the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do not understand the mystery of your love and your grace toward those who have been your enemies and who live in a hellhole of our own making. Teach us this day to wonder at this great love, this miraculous love that you have showered down uh, upon broken people such as us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.